This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, the GA industry tells the NTSB to cool it. The aviation industry and golfers alike mourn the passing of the king, Arnold Palmer. Sirius XM users have an option now for the iPad. And if you're looking for a job, the FAA is hiring traffic controllers. All right, Dave, you ready to do Hangar Talk? Let's do it, Ian. Okay, David, uh, getting right into this, you uh, teased this up. Some sad news we'll start with uh, this week that Arnold Palmer, we lost Arnold Palmer recently. Yeah, Arnold Palmer, known as the king of the fairways, a a title that he himself said that he didn't mind, but he didn't advocate, Hmm. was actually the king of the airways, too. Did you know that? Yeah, you know, I had heard he was a pilot. I didn't read a whole lot about his background, though. I didn't know much about it. He learned how to fly uh, near his Latrobe, Pennsylvania hometown airfield, which is named after him today. Yeah. Arnold Palmer Regional Airport. In fact, there's a, a departure called the Please 2 departure, and you fly past the Arnie intersection. Really? Yeah, that's kind of nice to huh. to have your name up there on the charts even after you're gone. And, and he set some records on the golf course we know, but did you know that he was a record-setting pilot? No, you know, I, I knew he had a Citation 10. So were these speed records that he set? or He did set a closed-course speed record in 1997. Okay. And he also set an around-the-world record in oh, 1976 wow. when he circumnavigated the globe in 57 hours, Holy 25 minutes, and 42 seconds. Wow. Yeah. So Arnold Palmer was uh, well-liked on the golf course. And whenever you would see him, and I covered several of his uh, tournaments that he was in, whenever you'd see him, he'd wave to fans. He'd spend extra time on the course signing on. Autographs. He was just a, a jovial guy. Yeah. Really flew the flag well for, for golf and also for aviation. Yeah. I mean, I, one thing that I kept reading about after um, after he passed was that uh, everyone, the, the one word that everybody had for him was gentleman. That he they was. said he was just the consummate gentleman. He was and always had a kind word for people. And really, in the aviation world and sports world, he kind of opened the door for a lot of pilots to get their pilot certificates. Mm-hmm. People like NASCAR's Tony Stewart and NFL's Tom Brady followed in his footsteps hmm. and you know to be aviators. Yeah. Wow. Well, he'll he'll certainly be missed. I know. I know in the golf world, especially. So he will. And he was a he was a philanthropist also, and he was a very helpful GA advocate. So we'll miss him in the GA world as well. Yeah. So moving on now, uh, the NTSB. I, I talked just a little bit about this one in the intro. Um, this stems from. It's really kind of an interesting story. You know, the the NTSB obviously is chartered with. They're supposed to investigate safety. Uh, Uh make safety recommendations. They don't have any really regulatory teeth, but they make recommendations to the FAA. Um, And you might have seen on, I think it was NBC on the news a couple weeks ago, they did a fairly uh, hard story, I would say, about GA accidents. You know, they're a fallen from the sky sort of story. Yeah, it was kind of the chicken little kind of a story. Yeah. But uh, now that that did uh, occur after there was um, a mid-air collision down in Georgia, yeah. the west side of Georgia. Yeah, so as you know, I mean, it's a tactic that news media will take. They find one event and then try and make a larger pattern out of it. It's easy pickings. Yeah, that's right. And so um, 
what we've learned is that really the NTSB has been an advocate for these types of stories, and they fed the data to NBC as as part of this. No and way. Yeah. Uh, amazingly, it's like they should be busy actually going to accidents and investigating accidents, but and and train accidents as well. Yeah. Um, so, but uh, but AOPA and a, a bunch of other groups. This is an industry effort, really. I think how many? Twenty one was it? Twenty one groups, including yeah. the Ironicas Aviators Club and uh, the Blanca Champion Club. The EAA, even yeah. the Flying Dentist Association, and of course AOPA too. Yeah, so I think everyone get into this, and basically told NTSB to knock it off, give them the right data. Um, you know, our our own statistical analysis shows that uh, if you read the null report, which I know everybody reads the null report, right? it was a good report this yeah, year. It is, it is, it good. really was. Well, the numbers are good. I mean, the, the they're rate going has been, down. Yeah, it's yeah. been going down, and and the the story did not get into that at all, and it and it should have. I agree, and I think a lot of people get confused by this, but the I think what the NTSB meant to say was that one thing that we do look at as aviators is the number one cause of accidents is control flight into terrain and spatial awareness. But I think that somehow this gets twisted up in this type of story. And it gets I think NBC turned that right around and they left the crucial part of that that sentence off yeah. and just said that the number one cause of, of uh, fatalities was aviation accidents, which was not true. Yeah. And so uh, one of the benefits of this, you know, I know, I know people sort of hear about these stories and think, well, okay, fine. What's the point? Like we sent the NTSB a letter, but since this, uh, you know, we, we keep track of uh, media mentions, obviously aviation media mentions to know kind of what the mainstream press is talking about. And a few outlets, a few big name outlets, have since written stories saying that the GA accident record is going down and GA flying is getting safer. And so it is. Yeah. In that sense, it had an attendance effect. Well, it's safer, I think, for a couple of reasons, which we've talked about in other hangar talks. Mm -hmm. We now have some more advanced avionics to help us with situational awareness. Mm -hmm. And pilots are being trained a little bit more. We have simulators, a little bit more online training. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that all in all, uh, we're learning a little bit more about what, what makes things work and not work the yeah. right way. Yeah. One interesting statistic from that story was that more people died falling out of bed than in general <laughs> aviation accidents. Do you, this is a weird one. Do, do you know anybody who's died falling out of bed? Fortunately not. I, I don't either. And I mean, obviously this must be true. I, it just blew me away when I heard that, though. It's like, I wonder about stats like that. It's like, does it mean that they had a problem in bed and then fell out and really they died before they fell out of the bed or is it like literally on the way down they hit their head on the railing or? i don't know but five thousand <laughs> people died falling out of bed oh, it's amazing between 2008 and 2014 yeah more than were killed in private and business flying that's incredible it reminds me we, um i took my son he's really into sharks right now and we did and we did this aquarium shark thing and uh, they have a coconut there. And yeah. they're like, what's the point of the coconut? Well, the point of the coconut is more people die from coconuts falling on their heads and, than kidding. shark bites. Oh, my goodness. I had no idea. Yeah. So it's, there you go. Ah, all right. <laughs> well, maybe, anyway. the, maybe the NTSB needs to investigate sharks now. Yeah, and sure. coconuts. You're right. <laughs> all right. Um, so something that, uh, that you've been covering, ATC hiring, uh, like a lot of places, FAA is looking for, uh, looking for warm bodies. That's true, Ian, and really you have to think back a ways to, for this to all make sense. But more than 35 years ago, President Ronald Reagan fired 11,000 air traffic controllers basically all in one day. They yep. went on strike. They wanted a little bit more money. They wanted uh, a, a shorter work week, all in all. Hmm. But at that time, uh, just imagine thousands of new controllers you know, filled the void yeah. and a bunch of managers came in to help uh, keep the airspace safe. Mm -hmm. Now the airspace is still the safest in the world. We know that in the USA, but the agency is on track to hire 1,781 new air traffic controllers before the end of this year. Wow. And so what, how does this work these days? I mean, um, there was a time when it's like you had to either be in the military or go to a college or something. How, how are you hired as a controller? Good point, Ian. Um, it looks like you can go to the FAA's, Academy out in Oklahoma City, okay. Air Traffic Controller Academy, and you have to go through that. You have to pass that before you can move on to the next level, which hmm. is basically getting on-the-job uh, training. Okay. And so if you go through that and you get your on-the-job training, and you might move from facility to facility, but it could take up to three years, basically, to hatch a well-qualified air traffic controller. Wow. Oh. So there's a little bit of a void between starting out and getting to that, that high level. Yeah. And experts agree that there's a bottleneck in that training pipeline, too. 
Yeah, I, well, that makes sense when it takes that long to bring somebody up to speed. you got to work your way up. I mean, yeah. really, that does make sense, though, because as a pilot, you want to have the safest possible, you know, eyes and ears on the ground. And, you know, it, it takes some time to learn those skills. Yeah. And especially some of the new technology coming on on, on board, too. Yeah. Um, what, about, uh, what about you? Do you ever want to be a controller? I did actually want to be a controller, but it was only after I got into huh. aviation. And the thing is, I was too old to be a controller. Yeah. So this the the other thing with this is that they um they have an age <laughs> limit. Yeah, that's true. And I think the FAA really wants to have you for twenty years, twenty five okay. years as a tra- air traffic controller. I mean, I guess they pay a fair amount for your training, so I suppose that makes sense. Once you get through the training, you get pretty decent money. It's, yeah. it's uh, indicated in the story that we wrote. But it does take a while to get through that training. And if you look at the numbers, you have to retire by the age by the, the age of fifty six. Okay. And you can move into management, but you can't really actively be a controller. You know, looking at screens and, and stuff at that time. Huh. So there's a little bit of a turnover. Yeah. And you have to give the FAA your best. 20 to 26 years. They want you in the prime of your life, you, I guess. You got it, man. You got it. Huh. But you can end up at a pretty decent salary range. So for folks that are interested in aviation and yeah. interested in how things work and interested in engineering and airspace, it's a perfect match. Yeah. I always feel like you'd have to be good at puzzles to do ATC. Like if you're really good at spatial orientation and things like that. Like I feel keep, like the, I don't know, the test, like does the test make you do puzzles? And I don't and, know, but you got to keep a lot of numbers in your head. Uh, yeah. I don't think I could do it. But you know, even at some of these, uh, some of the local air traffic control facilities. I know you've been in a few, uh-huh. and uh, even at, to this day, a lot of them still keep track of things just written by hand. Yeah. A little, they call them chits. Yeah, and those little little boards yeah, like, that they kind of move up and down. or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I know it's amazing, interesting. Yeah, but all that should be changing with next gen, mm-hmm. uh, new uh, next gen systems that are coming on board. Next generation air traffic transportation system. Yeah, the modernization for the airspace world. Yeah. Huh, cool. All right. So, uh, if you want to be in aviation and um, and a really decent career and a stable one, it's good opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Uh, cool. Okay. So our second story this week, um, Sirius XM. That they, looks pretty fun. Yeah. So they've got a box now um, to you know. I mean, we've all seen these ADS-B receivers that connect with the iPad, like the Stratus. Yeah, I want uh, one. Yeah, <laughs> that sort of thing. <laughs> um, so Sirius XM has finally gotten in the game, um, and. I mean, really basic, the way it works, obviously, is that uh, it that grabs the satellite data. Um, remember, you only get weather. You Just get weather, no, de- no traffic info. Yep, and then it'll shoot it to the iPad. And I think right now, maybe only for flight. Is that right? I know it's available on ForeFlight right now. Okay. And you do have to have a monthly subscription after that. Ian. Yes. But the price is right. If you jump on board right now, the normal price is $699 retail is $499 until the end of 2016. And you can get a two hundred dollar rebate. That's cool. Um, the uh, that's actually a really good deal for a box like that. It's a great deal. Yeah. The you know um, I said pluses and minuses to any system. Obviously, um, I mean the the bad thing I think for SiriusXM is you have to have a subscription. Yeah. So you're paying a monthly fee. Uh, but the good thing is you get it on the ground. You can, uh, yeah. And, and now I wonder if you, if you get the updates any quicker than uh, than before. And you and I talked a little bit about this in Hangar Talk last week about the latency. Yeah. With some of this. Yeah, it's a real issue. It is, but yeah. uh, it would sure be nice to have that information in the cockpit because if you're above, you know, a couple of thousand feet, you really can't get phone service at all. Yeah, right. And so there is a gap there from uh, with ADSB from the time that you're on the ground and and have cell service to the time that. That uh, you're at, well, I mean, it depends on where you are, but uh-huh. at least a couple thousand feet. And if you're launching into weather or if you know you've got some 20 miles down the road or something, that, that can be a pretty pretty big time For difference. situational avoidance, it would really be helpful to have that in the yeah. cockpit all the time. Yeah. And I then, like that. The other thing with SiriusXM is um, traditionally the, the resolution has been better uh, than what you get through ADS-B, and the picture is a little bit nicer. And Very they do cool. Some smoothing on the shading and stuff like that. So. Um, I think for 299 bucks, especially if you're a SiriusXM user to begin with, that's a that's a pretty good deal. That's a great deal. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to put a deposit down on one just as soon as the ship comes in. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. Say. So um, our last story, uh, our top story this week, we're, we're cheating a little bit. This is We're combining two stories into one, but um, some AOPA updates. The first is that we record this on Monday, the day after Prescott, our last flying of the year. And we were asking our Hangar Talk listeners last time we met if we would 
break the record that yeah. we thought we were going to break. Yeah, what? Because four thousand in Bremerton, which was already huge. It and, was. And, it was huge. Forty yeah. five hundred. That's yeah. right. Yeah, and, and uh, we were looking for a new record at uh, at Prescott, and did we make it? Yeah, unbelievably. I mean, I guess perfect weather, beautiful location, last one of the year. True. Sixty. 500 people, was That's it? That's right. And some 565 aircraft. That's amazing. A wild event. Yeah. And 2,100 automobiles arrived at the airport. Wow. That's a traffic jam right there. Yeah, it is. But you had a lot of volunteers marshaling people back and forth, yep. aircraft as well as automobiles uh, coming to the event. And it sounds like it was just a stellar way to end the fly-in season. Yeah, I think so. And, you know... It's uh, I love watching Facebook the day after because you get to see people's photos pop up. Yeah. And I, you know, I know Rod Machado was there. And so lots of photos of Rod, you know, with his arm around people and people tagging. He's Rod a funny and, guy. Yeah. I really is. like him. Yeah. And so um, and all kinds of other folks who went. And so overall and I heard from from people who went that they said everyone had a great time and everybody's in a great mood and just and it was just a blast. Just it was really neat. A lot of people camped out for that. They also participated in that barnstormers party on Friday night, which yep. is fast becoming a thing to do. And I think this year um, that helped one, one thing that helped contribute to great attendance was the Embry Riddle Aeronautical University's, I guess it's their yearly annual homecoming event. Yeah. They mm-hmm. had a couple of performers that were past mm-hmm. students mm-hmm. and put on about an hour long air show, which just looked tremendous. Yeah. That's very cool. It's awesome. Yeah. So that was a great, uh, great ending to the AOPA fly in season. And I should mention before we move on to Purdue yes. that if folks out in uh, hangar talk listening land want to pitch an AOPA fly in at their airport, there is a way to do that. You really? Can, yes. You can, I can just I can write an email and be like, please come to my airport. I would like a fly-in. Actually, it's even easier than writing an email. <laughs> really? You can go to the AOPA.org internet site and scroll down to the fly-ins. And on the fly-in page towards the bottom, there is a link to an AOPA fly-in request for proposal. Oh, Folks who are listening out there in New Orleans, I sure hope you guys do a proposal. (laughs) You want to go? That would be a great one to have uh, in New Orleans. Yeah, that's what we should do. We should, places we want to go, pitch, you know, pitch people for that one. It's like Key West. That'd be fun. If you would like a fly-in. We haven't had one that far south. No. Please email now. I like that. Yep. Key West, Um, New Orleans, where else? New York City would be fun. New York, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, Teterboro, Uh, Long Island, or the uh, the New York heliport. There you go. That'd be so we. That's right. You're a helicopter pilot. There, you would put that one in. (laughs) I like it. Oh yeah. You know, it's like uh, Boston. That'd be cool. I don't know where else do we want. Gotta go go out west. Maybe. Well, we were at Colorado Springs before, but Denver would be nice. Yeah, that would be cool. How about Jackson, Wyoming? Oh yeah, that would be sweet. Oh man, I like that. that. Montana. So Montana. Uh huh. There right. are a lot, a lot of pilots up in that part of the country that really, um, some of them came to the Bremerton fly-in. Yeah, from over that's there. A, that's a whole. But it's gorgeous up there, and a lot of backcountry flying. That's up true. There. So, do you think they screen these by IP address? Like, if we send in like thirty of them, do you think they'll, you think they'll figure out it's I us? I won't tell anybody. Yeah. You won't. <laughs> All right. Cool. Um, so yeah, good season, and uh, what is it? A month or two, I think, we'll hear about the locations for next year. Uh, I've got my fingers crossed that a couple of those we mentioned might pop yeah. up, but you never know. Yeah, and um, and then we'll do at least uh, we'll do some more next year and, and have a great time, so keep an eye out for those. Um, the other thing we want to talk about it, you mentioned it briefly, this is a really cool program for AOPA. It's something brand new that you're going to be hearing a lot more about, but as part of You Can Fly... Uh, we have the the high school initiative. AOPA's high school initiative. And yep. just today we announced a partnership with Purdue University. Mm-hmm. And that's to help develop aviation STEM curricula across the United States. And for the folks who don't have kids in, in school right now, it's science, technology, engineering, and math. Mm-hmm. So important in today's world. Yeah, STEM's a big Computer-driven deal. world and, and aviation especially. And that's to get more engineers out there, more people interested in the aviation and space programs. You can be an aeronautical engineer. You mm-hmm. can be a pilot. Mm-hmm. And just a, a great opportunity to get folks started at a pretty young age. Yeah, that's right. And so... You know, I think um, nationwide there are a few hundred programs um, in high schools, and they're everything from, you know, one class that somebody just feels, you know, local pilot maybe comes in and volunteers his or her time and just feels passionate about, to all the way up to aviation-themed high schools. Like Raysback High School out in Seattle. Yeah, which Absolutely. you've been to. Yep. They have a 
very popular program out there, and it's right across from Boeing Field. Yeah, that's, that's so very it's cool. a lot of and and you got to think about the Boeing history. So there's a lot of interest in that. But I recently wrote a story about a program in Texas where they're um, building an RV12, a Vans RV12, mm-hmm. in a high school class. Yeah, two God, high schools are partnering so cool. up for that. Really, kind of a cool thing. Yeah, and there's uh, schools in Florida that have done that. Another school in Texas that's done that, and elsewhere across the country, and just getting the hands-on yeah. with aviation and engineering, and you know, doing some riveting and learning systems. Yeah, couldn't go wrong learning that yeah. kind of thing. Really, that's cool. And I was shocked when when we started this initiative to to learn that um, a lot of these are, are public schools. Like you thought, okay, well. Sure, a private school, um, you know, you could have that aviation themed and, and bring people in and charge whatever you need to charge, 12000 bucks a year or whatever. But many of these are, are public charter schools. Absolutely. And so the initiative is really to get this type of program mm-hmm. into public schools across the country. Yep. And Cindy Hasselbring is our senior director for the high school initiative, and she yep. brings a wealth of knowledge to yeah, this field. former teacher. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. So the You Can Fly program is off to a great start. This is going to jumpstart a lot of youth to get them involved in aviation, and, and we're hoping that they will, in turn, get some of their friends and fellow students involved with that with our efforts and with Purdue's partnership. It looks like a great thing. Yeah, and so uh, one plug here is that they're gonna, they have an annual meeting. Um, they're going to have the That's second right. annual one uh, November 7th, I believe it is. We should check the site. Um, Sixth and seventh up I in Seattle. So. Yeah, that's right. And it's actually near uh, Raysbeck Aviation High School. Yep. Uh, adjacent to a museum right mm-hmm. there. And uh, and I had a chance to go visit that high school a couple of months ago and uh, participate in a ground school class. Oh wow! They were learning how to plot on E six B calculators. <laughs> Remember that? Yes. That yeah, was a little bit of a departure for I all do. of those of us who now have an app that will yeah. do that. <laughs> yeah. Slide rolls, what are yeah. these for? Yeah, yeah, but uh, but so that's where it is going to be there, November sixth and seventh, and we're looking to have about two hundred people in the high school world that are educators involved in that in that symposium. Yeah, and the deal that with that is, if you have an interest or maybe an inkling that you want to help your local district or you want to push maybe somebody from your district to attend, uh, go for it. We, we want as many people as we can just to uh, come together, learn, share ideas, basically. That's right. And just uh, go to our You Can Fly page at AOPA.org and scroll on down there to the high school symposium, and you can click and register, or you can let your friends know about that as well. Okay, great. So now from one end of uh, the spectrum all the way to the other, um, our guests this week, we're, we're going to have two. They're together, one segment, and uh, we've got... This is, I think, a fascinating story. It's uh, Chris Rose, a photographer, and Julie Walker, our senior features editor. And they made a trip um, a couple months ago to Africa. Wow. Yeah. That sounds pretty cool. And I've, I heard a little bit about that from the inside out. But I think our, our readers and listeners are going to really be interested in, in how they made that come together. Yeah. So we talk a little bit about, yeah, how the trip came together, um, what it was like. And uh, they, they, they went there to focus on a humanitarian uh, organization, Air Serve International. A great way to take aviation to the next level. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, and then what they found really was that um, Air Serve operates this really unique um, program with Cessna Caravans for the World Food Program and Doctors Without Borders. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what they really found is that flying in Africa was just beautiful and really cool. I'm sure so, it was gorgeous. Yeah. A little treacherous. You got to yes. know what you're doing. A little bit. Absolutely. But, and that's another thing about aviation and the benefits of aviation. You really can't get around down there without little airplanes yeah. and GA. Yep. So a major part of the transportation hub. Yep. So they do talk about that and lots of other stuff. So I look forward to hearing a little bit more about those two and about their trip and, uh, and some look at, look forward also to seeing some of the gorgeous photography yeah. and the stellar writing that we can count on every month well, in the AOPA Pilot Magazine. <laughs> Chris, Julie, we're sitting in a little room in Frederick, which is quite a bit different from where we're going to talk about. Um, you guys got back not too long ago from a place probably most of us will not go, and uh, certainly the vast majority of us will never fly. Uh, you were in the middle of Africa. Yeah, and but really the story started from this building. Um, we, I was in the cafeteria, and one of the girls from ASI said, wouldn't you like to go to Africa? And 
I don't know whether Chris was with me or not, or I told him later or something, but Chris was like, yeah, we want to go to Africa. And I was like, eh, I don't know whether I want to go to Africa. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't on your bucket list? No, no. And certainly not this part of Africa. It is, it is definitely a unique part of Africa. There's no doubt about that. But no, I was, I, I actually, I think Africa is kind of the holy grail for photographers. Um, you know, I've always wanted to go there, but I don't know whether Central Africa would have been my, my first choice uh, to begin with. Yeah, everybody else goes and, you know, sees the big five, right? It's the big five, big three, whatever, the animals, the lion and the, and the giraffe and, and the rhino, and they do safaris and fly over this gorgeous land. We didn't do that. No? No, <laughs> no. no this was not the safari part of Africa. Yeah. This, so, is, this is jungle Africa. So you went into um, Entebbe. You went to Uganda. That's where you started. Yes. Uh, and, the, and the point of the story was humanitarian, really. Right. Um, AirServe um, started like 40 years ago, um, ironically, in Warrington, Virginia, which is only about, you know, an hour from here. It's the um, suburban jungle. Suburban, suburban jungle, jungle, right? <laughs> <laughs> and um, they established themselves in Entebbe. And, and I remember Entebbe because um, I'm older. I remember Entebbe from the 70s when there was a big coup there and it's Idi Amin and it's all the scary parts of Africa that you can think of. Now, um, Entebbe now is, is actually, it's quite beautiful. I mean, it sits right on Lake Victoria, which is the second largest lake in the world. So it was pretty amazing. Um, and it was very pretty. You just had to kind of get beyond the concertina wire and the, <laughs> and the gates yeah. and the guns. Yeah. Well, you know, when we got there, it was, it was funny because, you know, you think about the first, the first thing that you're going to encounter is this kind of shocking level of, you know, militarization and poverty, but really it, we, we got off the airplane and almost immediately got invited to a wedding, which was kind of strange. <laughs> so we, the first few hours in, uh, in Uganda were spent at a beautiful wedding on Lake Victoria. It's sort of, then it sort of kind of trickled down from there. But, yeah, yeah. Well, but so when you get off and, and so in Tebby in the airport is it's, it's not a, it's not an awful airport, but it's not certainly not an American airport. But it was very love, actually, to me, of the movie, which shows that when people get off the airplane, everybody's greeting one another. And while, yes, there were a lot of men with guns in Entebbe, there were also a lot of people welcoming, in, and it was an airport. It was people coming home or coming from somewhere. Hmm. And so, yeah, Chris is right. We were greeted and whisked off to this wedding. Luckily, both of us had brought, you know, a little something didn't look too bad to wear, and we get to this wedding and it's this big tent on the shores of Lake Victoria and it's an authentic Ugandan wedding and when I say that it's it was all in Ugandan so of course Chris and I had no idea what was being said and the women were all in the native dress which is the they're big flowery dresses with um big bows in the front I'm Mm. not I asked somebody but I'm not really sure why the dress is the way it is but and then was dancing. Um, and, of course, we have now been on an airplane for 20... Better part of 20 hours, <laughs> I think. Yeah. Well, in and out of airports, because yeah. there's just there's no way to fly directly yeah, you can't get there into. From here. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. so we're a little... Bit, I, think, I think I was kind of punch drunk from tiredness, and we hadn't eaten. And so we're, our first introduction to food is this beautiful assortment of Ugandan... Um, uh, treats I, or uh, delicacies or whatever. I, I didn't know what any of it was, nor I guess did Chris, but we were starving. So we we um, sat down and ate. The funny part too was, is that not only was it Ugandan music and Ugandan um, the, the t- speeches and talks and every part of the family, everyone got up and talked. Um, periodically, they would throw in American music and there'd be Percy Faith or <laughs> Earth, wind, and fire. So, like, so. bad DJs are worldwide. Is <laughs> yes, that what you're exactly. saying? Yeah, <laughs> mm, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you got to it the next day, um, and and talk a, a little bit about what AirServe is and, and what they do. Well, AirServe is a non-sectarian contractor that flies groups such as Doctors Without Borders and the World Food Program throughout the world, actually. And what we were there for was their efforts in the Congo, South Sudan, and Chad. So AirServe, we were, we were there with the president of the company. So, so to, to say this, when we got off the airplane and when we met everybody, they were equally as thrilled to see us, I guess, as they were the president of their company. They were going to put on a sh- you know, they were going to really welcome because yeah. they hadn't seen him a while, in a while. I think he goes, let's say um, every four or five months he goes in there. So mm-hmm. he's normally in Seattle, which was where he's based. So 
um, so when we got there, we, we did the little tour of the area, and but we were immediately going to be whisked off to, to Bunia, which is in the Congo, which is where the Doctors Without Borders hospital was. Okay, so did they take the doctors, I guess, from uh, Entebbe then into the Congo? That's that's the deal? They take doctors as well as um, logisticians. I, I had a real trouble with that because most people are French or Swiss um, German too, and so the language barriers for me, anyway, was a little bit uh, challenging. And they, I kept asking everyone who was on the caravan with us, and when I say everyone, it was what six or seven guys, men and women, um, and most of them were in logistics. Yeah. <laughs> oh. made, me, made me wish I had paid a little bit more attention in uh, high school French. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so and so, tell me about the the airports. I mean. They're based at Entebbe at the International Airport? Yes, they are. So so for me, that was really interesting because, like I said before, as I rem- remembered Entebbe and the tower where the Israeli... Uh, the uh, special Forces, basically. Yeah, the Special Forces. Or something, yeah. The, you yeah. Know, the, the um, raid on Entebbe yeah. um, took place. is still there. In fact, is it houses now the president of Uganda's, his his airplane and his his staff. Not only is the tower there, the... The bullet holes are still on the side of it. I mean, you can see it. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, I didn't realize it because we, when we flew in, we flew in at, um, it was dusk. Um, you fly right over Lake Victoria. Hmm. So the end of the runway is right at the edge of Lake Victoria. So it's really beautiful. And you don't realize that until, you know, like I did, I guess, wasn't until we left even maybe, but all of it sits on Lake Victoria. It's, it's a beautiful airport. It's, it's just not an American-style airport. I yeah. mean, it's um, definitely has a third-world feel. We waited what two hours for our luggage. I don't know. Maybe that's no different than BWR. Well, the people. Yeah, I right. mean, it seems like the people that are coming in there too. You know, they're not bringing an overnight bag. They're yeah. bringing you know a lot of equipment in there because it seems like you know at least at least a high percentage of the people that are flying into the airport are UN aid workers. So they're not mm. coming there for a weekend visit. Yeah. I mean, uh, they're coming there for months at a time. So, you know, it was a lot of equipment, uh, supplies, a lot mm. of strangely bundled uh, things. Hmm. Yeah. So but does it feel secure, I mean, to the airport? Because the Air Service, uh, so they have a, a big bulk hanger, I guess, where they keep their stuff? Oh, yeah, they've got two big hangers, and um, they've got uh, offices. <clears throat> yeah, it, it, it felt secure. I mean... I would, I, would, <laughs> I would go so far as to say it was probably the most secure airport that... I've ever been to. Oh, wow. And I've been to a lot of airports, obviously. Yeah. But going in or out, it's not, you know, in an American airport, you basically go through security once. Mm-hmm. Um, here, you go through security three or four times. Mm. Yeah, leaving, um, we went through four times. Wow. And so I actually felt pretty secure. I mean, it, it, there's definitely a military presence there. Yeah. Um, but it's hard to, it's actually hard to draw up. The difference between military and police and, you know, national security forces and things like that, because yeah. they all kind of dress the same. Yeah. They're all carrying AK-47s. They've all got, you know, large pickup trucks or dogs or whatever else. So, but I don't think, I don't think it was a sense of ever being threatened. It was just a feeling of very high security. Mm. So, yeah. So you take off from this sort of, this big international airport right. that's got, and I, I think I saw in the pictures, there's. A, bunch, a big UN presence. Oh, so yeah. There's oh, white airplanes everywhere. Yeah, there's a massive UN base there. And, you know, the, the planes that are flying out of there, it was kind of interesting because, you know, if you go into, you know, the local airports here near our headquarters or, you know, BWI and Dulles and National and things like that. But um, when you go into those airports, there's typically, they kind of separate the um, sort of the general aviation side from the more commercial mm-hmm. aviation side. And, and yeah. oftentimes you're in a, you know, you might be in an area of the airport that's served only by one airline. But at Entebbe, you get a real strange mix of aircraft. Mm. Uh, you know, there was everything from uh, 777s, which is what we came in on. But, you know, our 777 basically taxied right up next to, um, you know, it was like a, a Piper Seminole and oh, wow. a Caravan and uh, some other smaller aircraft. Huh. So there's just, there's definitely a mixed bag. So of, it's not like the airline side of the airport and the GA no, side of the airport. No, right. No, it's, it's, it's all, all mixed together. together. Oh, wow. So, uh, huh. you know. But so. then when you leave Entebbe, yeah. which we flew, so if you look at your map and you go all, we basically went all the way across um, the top of Uganda to land in Congo. And the, the first airport there is, is Bunia. Um, yeah, and what's that like? Not like in Tebby. <laughs> <laughs> Dirt, I assume? <laughs> Actually, you know, as, no, as I remember paid. it, the, the airport itself was in, I mean, the runway itself was in pretty good 
was in pretty decent condition. Yeah, yeah. the runway I mean, was not a problem. It was more the facilities on the yeah. airport. The facilities were but defi- I guess, I, well, definitely that's true. third I mean, world. Well, yeah. because this is, I mean, it's an international airport as well, right? I mean, you, yes. have, to do, you have to do customs and everything else. So it's right. not like you're yeah. flying yeah, into the bush or anything. Speaking of customs and uh, fees, um, there was a lot of money flying around. And <laughs> there was $100 here and $20 here. And the funniest part for me was they didn't, they wanted they wanted the money obviously and you had to pay and you had to fill out all these forms but like I one of my 20s had a little tear at the top of it when yeah. I say a little tear I mean it was like an eighth of an inch and they wouldn't take it because oh. it was torn they wanted them they wanted the bills to be perfect oh, which was odd yeah and and american money yes oh yeah they oh, want yeah. dollars oh yeah american yeah. dollar i mean i you know and that's that's something you tend to find almost anywhere in the world is that american dollars are i mean yeah. King. Yeah. I mean, they're as good as good as gold. Yeah. So you, you, I guess you cleared customs there, and then the the idea was you were going to a hospital, right? You were delivering a. Well, a that first night we were going to meet um, Jules Banga, who um, is the Bunia uh, manager for AirServe. Okay. So um, he's originally from uh, north of Bunia, and he now runs the Bunia operation there. Oh wow! Okay. Which means that he. He's responsible for the coming in and out of, of the six aircraft that AirServe has. Okay. So we went to his offices on the street. It's right on the streets of Bunia, which now for me was starting to become very challenging because, first of all, road is a misnomer. It's not a road. It's just a rutted, rutted, um, I don't know, clearing um, that you're driving through. Oh, so he's not based on the airport? No. No, no, he's no. actually downtown. Oh, no. really? Yeah. Huh? Is the airport? I mean, do they just not have the facilities? Is it just not big enough to house it? Or you know, I I don't I don't know. I I don't think we even thought about that or to ask. But I, there to me, and Chris might disagree with me. To me, there was less of a feeling of congeniality, if that's the word, at Bunia than there was at Entebbe. Entebbe mm-hmm. and AirServe, um, the people treated us beautifully in Entebbe because we were with AirServe and our handlers and Dave um, Karlstrom had his AirServe shirt on and everybody would say, ah, AirServe, ah, AirServe. It didn't feel like that at Bunia. Yeah. And it did feel a little bit to me like whisking away. Yeah. Yeah. I think part of it had to do with the language barrier. I mean, there was definitely more English speaking people in Entebbe. Hmm. Uh, but by the time we got it to Bunia, it was, it was kind of a kind of a native French dialect, I guess. Um, and yeah, I mean, there was it was a little bit more there was a little bit more suspicion, I guess, flying around. Hmm. But uh, unfortunately, you know, like in a lot of third world countries, you know, it's it's about get, collecting those fees. Yeah. You know, whether those fees are the same fees that maybe somebody else would pay, but. Yeah. You know th- these kind of things happen, but uh, yeah, I mean Julie's right. The facilities were uh, modest, to say the very least. Mm. I, you know, to give you an example, when they had to actually print our documentations, they they had one one sheet of paper. I mean, literally one sheet of paper, running it off of like some circa nineteen ninety five HP printer. Mm. I mean, all you know, old you know CRT type yeah, computer wow. monitors. Huh. Was, uh, and you got to visualize the room too. It's mm-hmm. it's just a small concrete block room that um, not a dirt floor per se, but it's not also a you know it's not hardwood or car. You know it's just this old floor and old. It just it has a it started that was in the, for the trip for me when it started to really come home to me that this was a very different world. Mm. And <clears throat> from there we went actually to. Um, our hotel, and even now I use that word so loosely because that's the only time that I really had sort of a panic attack with the whole thing because when we drove up, there were all these kids running around the street. Now, and one thing, there are motorcycles everywhere. Yeah, Everybody yeah. uses the motorcycle, and they can get more people and more goods on a motorcycle <laughs> than you can imagine, and they just whip in and whip out, whip, whip, whip all over the place. Um, so there's motorcycles everywhere. There's kids everywhere. And I don't know whether you noticed, Chris, as much as I did, but when we first arrived at this hotel, first of all, it's behind all these gates and stuff, and we got out of the our van, an, a truck pulled up, and it was full of young Congolese soldiers. And they each had, you know, two or three guns strapped across them, and I'm just not used to that sort of thing. And yeah. I, I, I had a moment where I was like, wow. And the kids all gathered around, and, and Chris had his equipment, and I said, here, I'll take a picture 
on my phone, <coughs> Chris and the kids, and I set my purse down. Um, and it purse is misnomer. It was just a bag. But I set it down on the ground, and I took the picture, and I look up, and Chris is like right, right next to me, and he goes, picks that up. And I'm like, what? You know, what <laughs> happened? And he goes, Julie, as soon as you set that down, all eyes went there. Mm. Do you remember? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and so, so then when we walk into the, again, hotel, um, there are these uh, two generals sitting outside. It was their little patio area. It was like, it really honestly was like out of a movie. Mm. And there are these generals, and then we walk in, and there's no, the language is a barrier, and you can't understand, and we get taken to our rooms. And the room was, was not what I'm used to. <laughs> <laughs> um, the bathroom, not at all. So I, I, I really, it, it, that first night I had a little bit of trouble with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's not to cast, it's you don't want to cast this idea that, you know, these places that, that the people in these places are, you know, thieves or anything like oh, that. No. These people, these are people that are in some cases desperately poor. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, a, you Take a, a single piece of photography equipment is probably more than you know some of these people make in a year or, or more, mm-hmm. and uh, so you have to be cautious. I guess is the best word. Yeah. Um, and Chris is much more used to this kind of stuff than I am. I'm I'm kind of like a child. <laughs> <laughs> After we left um, Bunia the next day, um, heading out to Boga, which is where the Doctors Without Borders. Um, hospital was we stopped in a small airport um, mainly for photography purposes Mm. Uh, we were in a caravan we had uh, two air serve pilots who were terrific and we land on this airstrip which was actually very beautiful flying over africa is is beautiful it's green this is the first one this is the maf yes yeah Yeah, we we stop at this this airport and so chris says um well a lot of the villagers come out and they're all little kids Mm. and um fathers Um, and so what what is the strip is it what are we talking about now um it's it's a um, mission aviation fellowship airstrip hmm. um in the congo um can't remember the length i think i say well, it what does it look story. like um it's a grass strip it's actually it was quite beautiful it hmm. really was um really i mean hard pack well groomed yeah um, mode yeah um, and a beautiful um outpost at the end and a mechanic and there was oh, three wow houses there that um the maf uh pilots and their families live oh. so it's very nice and their families yes there was wow. um the canadian pilot that flew us in um so i'm getting my stories confused but anyway and then another pilot that was with us that flew in his wife and two kids will live there with him wow. so he had he talked to well, i talked to him for a while and he said that she was having a difficult adjustment but yet at the same time was um was loving it because it's so beautiful there. Mm. It really is gorgeous. But so, so bordering the airstrip are is a um, fence, a little sort of fence, and the all the villagers, not all the villagers, a lot of the little kids and stuff come running up to see when the planes land. We positioned the the airplane, and Chris said, you know, he'd like to get a photo with our pilots and the kids around. The kids came over and did photos with Chris, and they were very happy. And and the guys from AirServe carry extra water bottles and um, crackers and cookies and so we handed all those out to them too after that that was actually that was a beautiful location i mean it was right at the base of these mountains so Hmm. actually if you uh, i got the got the issue with the magazine actually in front of me uh that hope has wings is featured in i think it's page page 79 actually shows the approach to that airport Hmm. Um, and it was just a beautiful part of Africa. I mean, there was nothing around it at all, except you could see the mountains in the distance. Um, wow. But it was it was spectacular. So the um, is the flying, I mean, it's like, does it is it sort of our equivalent of VFR? I mean, do you get the sense that the pilots were like, hey, let's go here, and they just sort of do it? Or are things really structured and really locked down? I got the sense that they just go wherever, and they're yeah. just, yeah. They, oh, wow. Yeah. Totally they, open totally open yeah huh. and they and they love it too um uh victor was our pilot from AirServe. he's um ugandan and then jay uh was his co-pilot they always do always fly to pilot um and jay was from india so wow. and really international crew all it around is an international so, yeah. crew wow. yeah Oh yeah. wow, that's so, great! I could see, I I could see huts, the round huts that you think of when you think of Africa. Mm-hmm. I could see we flew, you know, low enough and slow enough that you could see all of that. And then we did some air-to-air photography, so we really 
maneuvered around and and could see a lot of you saw the streams and the uh, the huts and the and the campfires. Uh, it was you really had the sense when you're there, real Africa. Hmm. And so you um and then you you eventually meet up with this uh, person from Doctors Without Borders and, and go to the hospital, which is really one of the point of what AirServe does. Exactly, and that right. was another um, grass strip that we landed on. That one had an incline at the end. <laughs> yeah, incline. That's that would be one way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> So when we land there, again, we get the same thing. We get the children running out. We have two or three vans, AirServe vans, that are now going to take mm. us to the hospital. Okay. Um, and they were open-sided vans, um, and we had... A land, yeah, land, land Rovers. Yeah. No, they're, they're everywhere. I mean, okay. it's like yeah. the... So did the, I guess, does AirServe do all the whole transportation part of it, or was it just because you guys were there that they did the rides and everything else? Or is that... Is that really how it operates, that they do not only the flight, but then get the people to the hospitals and everything else? Well, actually, the the, the vans on ground were, were um, Doctors Without Borders vans. Okay. I'm sorry. Okay. The Land Rovers belong to them. Okay. But AirServe also have, has its uh, yeah, vehicles it's on, in yeah. different places. It okay. had vehicles in Bunia, for example. Huh. But this one was, no, we were basically being picked up there in Boga to be taken specifically to the hospital. And okay. we had with us uh, several workers who were coming in to do their stint. They are there for yeah. several months at a time. Oh, wow. So yeah. it's not just yeah. like they pop in for the day and they're gone. Right, right. Oh, no. Oh, okay. No. So yeah. does the, do they, traditionally the with the operations from AirServe, I mean, is it like they fly in, drop the people off, and they're gone? I mean, would they stay in a place like this for a couple hours or overnight? Or I think for the most, for the most part, when they, when they fly in, they want to get on the ground, offload the cargo, and get out of there as soon as possible. Hmm. Um, and I think that's for a couple of reasons. I mean, once you get into the DRC and the D- Democratic Republic of Congo, um, you know, the areas that we were in were were kind of, um, you know, from a military standpoint, were pretty cold at yeah. the time. But the, they do fly into some places that do have active yeah, uh, active conflict yeah. going on. Yeah. So, you know, a big plane full of supplies sitting on the ground yeah. is an easy target for some of these, you know, rebels. So... Uh, I think they try to keep them on the ground. I think that's just kind of procedure. Hmm. Get on the ground, offload, take off, and get back. Not only that, but, you know, the weather. Weather down there changes really, really rapidly. Hmm. You know, I... Um, I was in Florida last week, and you know it's it's not completely unlike Florida, where mm. you can have a sunny. You know, you think you're in the middle of a beautiful sunny day, and then the, you know you turn around, and behind you is a massive thunderstorm moving. But yeah. you can see a, you know sun on the other side of it. So it's it's a lot of moving around, it's a lot of fast moving weather, mm. um, and in some cases pretty severe weather that moves through yeah. that part of Africa. I would imagine. So now I you think, also had a conversation with the pilot at one point. And said that we were flying in a certain area, and, the, and he said that there was rebel camps underneath. Do you remember that? Yeah, that was actually on the way to um, to Bunia. There had been some rebel camps, and they, you know, he's he made, made the statement that you know this is this is an area of the DRC that you don't want to land in, drive through, and in. in Honestly, in many cases, that's why the airplanes are so valuable because, you know, without the airplane, they've got to go by road. And there yeah. are some roads that cut through there, if you yeah. want to call them roads. But, um, you know, it, it was amazing the time difference, uh, you know, between taking an aircraft. I mean, we all think that we all know that aircraft save time. But, you know, on those roads, it's not a difference of hours. It can be a difference of days. Oh, wow. And some of those roads, they wind through you know, these rebel held areas. Um, and, qu- and quite frankly, it's, you know, you've got a truckload of supplies. I mean, that is just a moving target yeah. for whether it be extortion or robbery or something worse. So And so they just operate out in the open then. I mean, if this guy knew where they were, it's like they're just, <laughs> they're just there and it's, they just camp out and they're completely yeah. out in the open. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. So, huh. Um, but uh, yeah, there were some areas uh, that were still, still in conflict, and mm. you know the conflict in that part of Africa. It seems to not to make light of it. It's like a traveling traveling circus. I mean, it just you know it's in one town one day, and then you know next month it's in a different town. It just kind of mm. moves around. It's uh, you know they're uh, very opportunistic uh, as far as where they where they go into, and you know when they when 
the rebels come into a village and conflict starts, you know, it often just, you know, the people of that village certainly pay the price. Yeah. Um, so and is it mostly tribal? I mean, is that yes. where they, they talk about that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think it's, yeah, it's typically tribal. Um, uh-huh. And uh, So what we saw in Boga, though, um, in the hospital, um, because there wasn't any great conflict at the time going on, what we saw was um, actually a maternity hospital. Oh, wow. So there were a lot of women in for um, giving birth and taking care of little kids. There were a few cases of other stuff, yeah. but the main role for this particular hospital was for education for women hmm. and to help with birth. And, and so is it a... Uh, a Congolese hospital or is it a Doctors Without Borders it's hospital? It's a Doctors Without Borders hospital. We so were greeted by huh. uh, a doctor, a beautiful woman from Mexico. The other guy was from, it was a, a doctor from Uganda. There were a couple doctors from pretty much all over the world. Oh, wow. Yeah. So they so they have a very permanent presence, really. Yes, oh, there's yeah. there's a, yeah. they live right next door to it. There's a compound where they live. Oh, wow. And there's also a compound in Bunia where they live also. Hmm. Okay. So what about the, um, I mean, we, you talked about them a little bit, but the pilots for AirServe, it sounds like it's an international bunch and, and everything from a mix of single people to families and uh, kind of all over, all over the map, I guess. Yeah, I, they're young. I mean, yeah. uh, Victor was 28 <clears throat> and Jay was 30. Um, they want the adventure of flying oh. and they love to fly. Now, Cindy Seelong, who's the chief pilot, she's a girl from California, probably in her 40s, do you think? Yeah, um, I'd say has a young son, hmm. and then uh, Chris really enjoyed. He had he'd done some his research beforehand and watched a show in which there was a guy named Dawson Tanner, uh, who's a pilot there, who's quite the romantic figure there, a very handsome man. We actually were driving on the street, and I said, "That's got to be him." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's a, he's a really interesting guy. Uh, you know, I, I guess. Several years ago, National Geographic uh, did a special on uh, bush pilots of the Congo, hmm. and he was sort of one of the central characters in that documentary. And uh, it, it, if you haven't watched it, it's a really, really interesting documentary. And um, and he just, you know, he he is the quintessential African bush pilot. I mean, he he speaks the language. Um, his uh, uh-huh. his wife is African. He. Um, you know, he's been every place and seen just about everything. He has and, rugged uh, good looks. <laughs> he's a rugged, <laughs> rugged good-looking fella. Uh, but yeah, he's he was a really interesting, really interesting person. And we, you know, it's it was funny because he he worked for AirServe for many years. He he no longer works for them, but uh, we happened to be very close to where we were staying in Uganda. And I and I said to Dave Carlstrom, who was kind of our our guide there, he's the president of AirServe. I said, uh, mm. so do you ever hear from Dawson? And he said, oh yeah, you know I have to, I talk to him every once in a while. And no no sooner did those words come out of my mouth, and he's like, well there there he is, you know. And he just <laughs> happened to be like walking out of this restaurant. <laughs> So, uh, Dawson, so we, we ended up kind you. of, uh, you know, hanging out with him for the next couple of days. And he, he was, he was interesting because, you know, he's, he's been there long enough to have seen a lot of different things happen in that area. Hmm. Um, he's been there during, you know, times of conflict and times of peace and, and he's flown all over Africa and kind of has an interesting backstory too, you know, comes from this, uh, fairly, uh, affluent Southern uh, family in the U.S. and just kind of, you know, kind of decided that instead of taking part in the family business, he wanted to he wanted know, adventure, go in. I guess. He wanted the adventure, hmm. uh, the adventure of Africa. So hmm. he, you know, flew charter into the Bahamas for a while and then went to Africa and, and never left. Wow. It seems, seems very happy there. Huh. But yeah, you know, all the pilots for AirServe um, were, were really, really nice people. Um, and I think you have to have a certain degree of humility to fly in those conditions. Yeah. Um, now, what Julie said, you know, some of the other organizations that are over there, like uh, um, Mission, uh, Aviation. Mission Aviation Fellowship, yeah. those seem to be, and I, and I could be wrong about this, but most of the pilots for AirServe tend to be, um, you know, they were, they were single. Um, a little bit younger. Hmm. Uh, they were all young, but yeah. it, it seemed like the the religious based organizations. It was more of it, w- it was more like being on a mission. Mm-hmm. So their families were with them. Okay. You know, I heard I heard several of them talk about their families and children and things like that. Hmm. Um, I know Jay and Victor uh, who were flying for uh, for AirServe. Um, 
I, I don't think either one of them no. were married, and they were, and they were young. I mean, they weren't you know kids, but they were they were yeah. pretty young men, and uh, you know, I, I just you know looking at them, I thought, wow, you know, they they were great pilots, great experience, well educated, and they could have gone anywhere and decided to fly to fly hmm. these kind of missions. So. And so, do people do it because? They believe in the mission, do you think, or they just want the adventure? They just think this is awesome. I think both. Yeah, yeah. I, I yeah. think it's it's really both. When you're in Air Service headquarters, you have more of a sense of a mission and more of a sense mm. of, you know, taking care and helping yeah. things like the World Food Program and like Doctors Without Borders. When you're out there with them, they love the flying. Yeah. I mean, uh, they were thrilled when Chris wanted to do air-to-airs. Mm. You know, they were very yeah. excited by that. They yeah. love the flying, and they love the aircraft that they fly to. Those caravans are really workhorses. Yeah. yeah. Huh. I, I, I can't imagine anybody operating in that part of the world that didn't believe in the mission. Yeah. I mean, you know, because I'm sure that, you know, if I was them, I'd rather be flying tourists and, you know, fishermen out to the Bahamas. But I think that you have to really believe in what, what's going on there and have a, have a certain tolerance, you know, and I look at somebody like Cindy and, you know, she's air Serve's chief pilot and you know, she's just this, I think she came from Southern California and, you know, just uh, this this very unassuming person that you could see anywhere in, in any situation, but instead has chosen to basically operate as uh, a single mom flying into some of the most dangerous remote areas on the face of the planet. Hmm. I was just like, wow, that's... That is impressive. Yeah, we had uh, near perfect weather the whole time we were there. Yeah, we really did. It was gorgeous. It was, you know, back here in the states, it was like ninety-five degrees or yeah. one hundred and ten or something crazy. And here we're in Africa, and it was seventy-five degrees, and there was wind off of the lake. It was. Yeah, I remember yeah, it's the like weather. You're go the to weather Africa to cool truly. Off. Yeah, <laughs> we yeah. were. Yeah. We really lucked out. So, so I think we saw it differently than really real reality. Yeah. I mean, uh, we saw beautiful days, beautiful weather. The roads were in good shape. There was no rain, so you didn't see the mud that would yeah. be there. For the most part, people were out when we were in town and in Tebby and when we were going to different places. We just saw it beautiful. People yeah. were there were dances, uh, uh, marketplace dances, and so we'd we'd be driving down a street and we'd run into an open air market and there'd be people out dancing, there'd be music, oh, wow. there'd be incredible fruit. Uh, you've never seen piles of bananas as big as the piles of bananas. Hmm. So I think... So it's lively. It, it's lively, very much yeah. so. And um, But I don't think that's the way it always is. I yeah. think we were just in this picture-perfect hmm. time period that we were there. Now, we never had gotten over to the to Lake Victoria, to the to the beach, because we'd been very, very busy. There were a couple little open-air restaurants that you could sit and be on the beach. We mm. saw Rwandan dancers, actually, at one place one night. But the last day we were there, Chris and I decided to walk down to the beach. I lasted all of, like, two seconds because, unfortunately, it was very dirty. Yeah. And then the, the smell of the lake, and and I, 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 I left him down there. <laughs> <laughs> there was a man taking a bath in the in the in yeah, the Yeah, well I, mean, I think that's you know it's in a lot of parts of the world it's like water is is yes. work, Wa- right. you know. Yeah. It's like that And you it's know. you know water is uh, not only is it a massive lake, one of the largest lakes in on the face of the planet, but it's fresh water. Yeah. And fresh water, you know, in the middle of Africa is, you know, gold. Yeah. Huh. So what uh, what what surprised each of you about it? I think what surprised me, not having ever traveled to Africa before and not really knowing what to expect, you, the first thing you do when you, when you get an assignment like you're going to Uganda, the first thing you do is Google Uganda. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I will tell you that the, the images that show up uh, for Uganda and, and the DRC are, you know, they're pretty extreme images uh, mm-hmm. because there's been a lot of conflict there. There's a lot of poverty. And when I say poverty... I'm not talking about the kind of poverty that we see really anywhere in the United States. I mean, this is life-threatening degree of poverty. But when we got there, um, uh, I think the thing that shocked me was that uh, Entebbe is actually a pretty hustling, bustling city. Um, There are certain parts of it that are very poor, but for the most part, there are modern conveniences there. Um, Great cell service, Mm -hmm. which when you're operating... Uh, in an area like that is important. Restaurants, bars, dance clubs, stores. Um, you can pretty much 
get anything you need. Relatively modern uh, healthcare facilities, but it's a big city. Um, I can't yeah. remember exactly what the population is, but it's the size of a of, of a modest uh, American city. Hmm. Now, just on the outskirts, it's much different. Yeah. Obviously, it's a city that is it is built and run because of the presence of aid workers. Yeah. Aid workers have been in that area of the world for a long time. There's a massive UN base. So very much like you see these towns that spring up to support U.S. military bases. Yeah. And Tebe is kind of the same That's thing. That's a similar feel. You know, everyone is either working for or in connection to some sort of aid service. Hmm. Everything from people that are repairing vehicles to supplying the the base with fruits and vegetables and meats and things like that. There's a huge security, you know, security seems to be one of the most lucrative businesses in, in this part of, of the world. Uh, you know, I saw people that looked like they were about 14 years old. They were working security, at, you know, <laughs> at the local stores, you know, every yeah. store, every restaurant that you go into has armed security. Yeah. And I think that that I'm not sure that it's really necessarily needed all the time, yeah. but there's it's definitely a visual a, deterrent. It's yeah. a visual deterrent. It's yeah. a show of force. Yeah. Well, um, Kampala is the capital. So Kampala is about 20 miles north of Entebbe, hmm. but the president lives in Entebbe. Yeah. And the president's house is like, uh, Dave kept saying, you know, it's bigger than our White House. And it, I, I, we never really completely saw it, but we kind of circled around it several times. So... So it's a kind of a capital city, but not really a capital city. Yeah. It's where the president lives and, and flies out of. Um, and then Kampala is closer. When we went to the wedding the first night, that yeah. was um, that was closer into Kampala. Hmm. So, but the irony was is that the the Entebbe Kampala Road, which is the main artery there, yeah. was not paved. Now around the airport, the roads are paved, huh. but driving from Kampala, uh, Entebbe to Kampala that very first night, and then later we did it a couple other times. Yeah. It's not a paved road, but all along on all sides of it, all sides, all the way up that stretch, are stores and um, open-air markets and corrugated tin-roofed uh, structures and, and, and goats being cooked on the outside, and it's, mm. it's intense, the sound. Yeah. Um, people just and horns blaring and um, a lot of that blasting of radios mm. um, real loudly and and people talking and music and it's really an a, kind of almost an assault on your on yeah. your senses and that, yeah. that it was um, interesting because that first night when we went up to um, to the wedding on the way back, Chris and Dave both fell asleep and I was surprised at it because I that was so noisy. <laughs> <laughs> and it was so intense even at, at night, huh. uh, how it was. Um, as far as what surprised me, I, I, I guess I thought, I did not look at any of the stuff that Chris was looking at before we left. He kept saying to me, you need to look at this and you need to look at this. And I'm like, no, no, no. If I look at it, I won't go. <laughs> I'll talk <laughs> myself out of going. Um, so in the long run, I'm, I'm glad I didn't because we didn't really see that. Yeah. Um, I was uncomfortable in the hospital. And I was uncomfortable because it felt intrusive to me. Hmm. Chris was wonderfully talkative to and asked for permission and spoke to people. But as a woman watching other women there having just either given birth or about to, I thought, yeah. oh, I wouldn't want to here yeah. Yeah. <laughs> watching. So, But uh, I, one thing we have to say before we finish is that totally different from the Africa part is that we flew on an A380 <laughs> over there to, and we went to Dubai first. Yeah. And Dave told the purser that he had very famous journalists on the plane. Yeah. <laughs> Infamous. Infamous. Um, and I, as the I told him, expecting the New York Times. Well, I told out. him later. I said, "Yes, we're so famous. We love to fly incognito in economy." Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think we were in row 180 or something, but. We got a tour of the A380. Yeah. And, well, you have to say which airline, because that matters. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, United Emirates. Yeah. And, boy, that's... I'd, I would do that just as a vacation. I would just take a flight <laughs> and just fly somewhere and fly back. Yeah. There, it's beautifully done. The, the flight attendants are every nationality and amazingly dressed and gorgeous Everything is high end. You get, you know, something, uh, a hot towel. When you sit down, you yeah. get just a menu of a selection of what you'd like to eat. 
Now, of course, we again, we were an economy, but because the purser came down because and, and because we were so famous, <laughs> he took us up into <laughs> business class and first yeah. class, and first class was empty. So, really? yeah, there was no one in first class. Wow. So he appears and hands us both a glass of champagne, and wow. we stood and had champagne in first class on an A380. It was people pay like thirty thousand yeah. dollars for that privilege yeah. usually, you know. Yeah. 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 So in so in the surprise part, would you ask me first? So I'm prepared. Or I think I'm prepared for you know a really rough time, and, and my first airplane, five yeah. hours are yeah. <laughs> are pretty nice. Yeah. Well, you know when you go when you go to that part of Africa, you know I'm sure that you could fly directly into like Johannesburg or something like that. Yeah. But when you go to Central Africa, you pretty much. You're going through Europe you're, and the Middle you're East. You're going through, yeah. in our case, the Middle East. So yeah. we went through Dubai. Yeah. Now, as if the difference between Washington, D.C. area where we're from and Central Africa isn't enough, you know, when you go through a place like Dubai, which is truly one of the places of the greatest excess I've ever seen on the, on the yeah. face of the planet, and then you go... You know, you go through Dubai, so you're in the airport stores with Rolexes and, you know, yeah. you can buy anything from any store from any place in the world. And then uh, and then, you know, five hours later, you're dropped in the middle of Central Africa. It's mm. uh, it's that is a culture shock. What what did it feel like going back? So you have, you know, I mean, you, you've just had this experience and seen the way these people live and then you have to get back on the airplane. Well, I almost left Chris there. We uh, we go through, as we said, four different um <laughs> inspections and I was, security i wasn't quite sure where this was going but I, and <laughs> I, see where, I see where we're at now um we had with us a drone and i was the drone carrier and when my we mule i was the mule <laughs> and when we got to the last um stop right before we we're going to get on the airplane inspector grabs the uh, case and says whose is this and being as nice as i am i pointed to chris and said it's his <laughs> <laughs> and we went through what a good half an hour or more yeah. of paperwork <clears throat> and um, explanations and calls wow. and back and forth and and I'm watching and everyone else is boarding and everyone else is going and wow. I'm th- I think it started how, with, how one, it started with one armed security guard and I think it it you know blossomed into so a, the, a the half drone a dozen. movement haven't hasn't made it to Entebbe no, yet, I guess no no, no. and, and I, I mean, they knew what it was but they didn't know why ironically we had, we had never no. had I carried that thing all around Africa and we never got to use it so here it is on the final thing yeah. and this is going to cause us the problem I thought well he'd be okay <laughs> <laughs> he'd be okay in a Ugandan prison yeah <laughs> but then all of a sudden. They said, you're fine, and, and we handed yeah. it back to us, and we got on the plane, and uh, off we went. The, the flight from Entebbe to Dubai still felt, even though it was a 777, it still felt like we were still part of Africa. Hmm. Once, once in Dubai, and we had dinner in Dubai at, what, 4 in the morning or something, whatever that would have been, and once back on the airplane, it was a flight like any other, hmm. and, all, and we, it was overnight, so... All yeah. of a sudden, we were home. Hmm. Certainly makes you appreciate getting home, though. I can tell you that. Yeah. Yes. You know. yeah. Good. Well, so next time we'll send you to Dayton. And <laughs> we've uh, been to Dayton. Been to Dayton. Yeah. <laughs> Chris and I's first job together was to Dayton. Well, we got, got a um, an email from John Sheehan, who used to be head of the international AOPAs, after the magazine came out, and he said to Chris and I, "Boy, they really send you to the garden places, don't they?" Yeah. <laughs> I take it good with the bad. I don't know. I think you volunteered for this one. So yes. we did yeah, volunteer we did. for this one. Good. All right. Well, thanks, guys. You bet. Thank Appreciate you. it. So, you know, I've never really wanted to go to Africa, but I think they might have changed my mind. I, it's it sounds like a pretty incredible place. And a great place to use an aircraft. Yeah, and absolutely. You've, you've been. You had an aircraft experience, actually. I've been to Africa, and I've had an aircraft experience there. And uh, I will say that I wouldn't trade it for the world, but you really got to know what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah, I believe it. All right, so that's it for Hangar Talk this week. Our editor is Austin Hansen. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. Find us on aopa.org slash Talk. Email us at hangertalk at aopa.org. Find us on iTunes and now on Sporty's Takeoff app under Hangar Space Talk. All right. We'll see you next time. See ya. Hey!